0: this morning's scripture reading, which is Matthew 7, uh, verses 1 through 6. Jesus is speaking. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. You may be seated. I was standing and singing with my family in the back, and I leaned over to one of my kids, and I said, "Uh uh-oh, I'm not feeling very well. You might need to preach the sermon. She said, I got this, Daddy. I said, really, what would you say? You're all sinners, and you need God. That'll preach. Yeah, good job. All right, that was free. Open your Bibles, uh, whether you have your paper versions or electronic versions, to Matthew chapter 7. As you're turning there... um, uh, I want to tell you that it, we had a, a good week. Michael Graham and I went to the Gospel Coalition National uh, Conference, and it's always so good for my soul to go to something like that because I, I walk away realizing that my piece of the puzzle is so small, <laughs> you know, and, and it's good for my soul because I I'm reminded that we're a part of something that is so big, and that has a lot of a lot of application to the text that we're looking at this morning. If you've been with us, uh, you know that we have been walking our way through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Um, And this morning, we get to a really interesting part of the Sermon on the Mount. Possibly, I think, the most quoted part of our Bible. But before we get there, uh, I think it would be helpful to remind you a little bit of what's going on in the sermon. Uh, Jesus is preaching against the lives and the teachings of the Pharisees. He has some really harsh things to say them and probably nothing more inflammatory than in chapter 5 when he tells everyone, For I tell you the truth, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, that's a pretty bold statement if you think about it. He's saying that the religious leaders that you have in charge of you right now, they're not going to see the kingdom of heaven. So what was it about the scribes and Pharisees, that was so bad. What was it that was going to prevent them from seeing the kingdom of heaven? Two words, self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. In this, in this passage, you can see a lot about self-righteousness through the censoriousness of the Pharisees. That's a really good word. All right, Censorious, it means condescendingly, hypercritically judgmental. So kids, bonus points this week if you can throw out censorious at the dinner table. I think Amanda will give you an extra piece of candy next week if your parents said you used censorious. All right, so what do you think is the most popular Bible verse in our culture? Okay, I... A lot of you would think John 3.16, okay? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And I would say that in the 20th century, that was the most known, the most popular, the most quoted verse of the Bible. I don't think that's true anymore. I think in our day and age, the most quoted verse in the Bible is judge not lest you be judged. To give the King James version of that. And it's famous because the, I say it's famous, it's well known because the ultimate sin in our culture today is being judgmental. Yeah, you know, When you add mental to the end of judge, it just sounds worse. I don't know if there's a difference between judging and being judgmental, but to be judgmental is the ultimate unforgivable sin in our culture. You, you can't have an opinion these days on how somebody else lives their lives. I had a, a guy, he was He was a friend, but he spoke very harshly to me once and looked at me and he said, I hate you Christians because of your intolerance for other people. And I was thinking, do you hear the hypocritical nature of that comment? Like, I am absolutely intolerant of your intolerance. But that's the culture we live in. And when someone says this, judge not lest you be judged, you you see they're actually judging. Like, that's what's going on, it is a way to judge. I'm judging you on the way that I perceive you to be judging. And in addition to just being hypocritical, the, using this text in this way is a fundamental misunderstanding of the way Jesus intends us to use this passage. So what I want to do this morning, I want to look at self-righteousness through the censorious lives of the Pharisees. And I just want to do two really simple things. I want to look at the components of self-righteousness and I want to look at the cure to self-righteousness. All right, so first, the components of self-righteousness. I I think there are four really clear components of self-righteousness in this passage. And the first we see in the first verse. The first component of self-righteousness is having a low view of God. Let's read verse one. Judge not that you not be... That you be not judged. So what is Jesus saying? I mean, is he saying you can't have an opinion about the way somebody else lives their lives? I know a lot of you kids would love for that to be what Jesus is saying. You can tell your parents, judge not. You can't have an opinion on the way I live my life. And then there would be people like Leo Tolstoy who would go so far as to interpret this text to say that we can't have any type of law enforcement, any type of, any type of court system, because we would be breaking the judge-not command. And honestly, to Tolstoy's credit, he is taking that misunderstanding of our culture to its logical conclusion. So at least he's consistent in the way that he's doing this. But that's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is not telling us that we can't, that we can't be critical thinkers, He's not even saying that we can't critique somebody or rebuke somebody. John records Jesus in chapter 7 saying, Do not judge by appearances, but what? Judge with right judgment. So there's a way to judge. There's a right way and a wrong way. And my goodness, what has Jesus been doing the entire Sermon on the Mount? He has been in some way judging, critiquing, commending us to live one way and not the other way. So what Jesus is saying, he's saying... He's not saying we should be opinionless, and he's not saying that we should be hypercritical, but he's saying that we should judge rightly, that we should have an appropriate level of criticality in the way that we look at other people. One commentator said that this passage does not mean that we can't assess people critically. It means that we can't judge them overly harshly. And this starts with a very high view of God. If you have a very high view of God, it's going to affect the way that you interact with other people. If you believe that there is a a holy and a perfect God and, and you see rightly that we're anything but holy and perfect, it's gonna have a humbling effect. It will it will chip away at our self-righteousness. Because to to brag about being uh, a spiritually or morally superior human is a contradiction in terms. To be a self-righteous human is like being, bragging about being the best behaved of all the inmates. You know, or the, the most engaging of all the boring people. Or the healthiest person in the cancer ward. Okay? It's a contradiction of terms. And Jesus is saying, in no uncertain terms, that there is a consequence to our self-righteousness. And that consequence is that we will be judged. If we put ourselves in the place of God, if we put ourselves as the final courts and want to look at other people and judge people as if we are God, having a very low view of God, then we will ourselves be judged. This is why Jesus says in verse two, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. I mean, we remember how this whole sermon began, right? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So what he's saying right now is consistent with how he began the sermon. It's just in the negative rather than the positive. And I think it's really important to understand that judgment and condemnation are two different things. Because I think when people in our culture, they say, don't judge me, they're really saying, don't contem- condemn me. So judgment is saying There's something better for your life. There's something wrong with the way that you're living. I want more for you. Condemnation is saying there's no hope for you. You're beyond forgiveness. You are some kind of second class human being. So we need to be really careful to understand the difference between judgment and condemnation. Because to condemn somebody is literally the antithesis of the Christian message. It's the antithesis of the Christian hope. It is the antithesis of the Christian gospel. We are not here to condemn, we're here to bring hope. But we do, in our efforts to bring hope, bring certain messages about the way that we and our friends and other people are conducting their lives. So as Christians, this is going to affect the way that we live. We want to be the type of employee or the type of employer that is going to be encouraging. You know, if we've, we've been really working in our house to make sure that everyone is speaking with encouraging speech. And I think I said this a few months ago, but I, I was kind of admonishing one of my kids. And he looked at me and said, well, that's not very encouraging. Uh, encouraging is not just fluffy speech encouraging sometimes means bringing some hard things to bear but doing it in a way where the person knows that you're for them you're wanting to help them we want to be that kind of person we want to be that kind of spouse you know we don't want to be the kind of spouse that says well I I never suffered with anger until I married this jerk (laughs) you know we want to be the type of parent that is always looking for something to praise. Something to lift our children up. But we're not afraid to enter into some of those harder conversations. Because we want the best for them. That's the kind of judging that that, that is permitted. That's not the kind of judging that Jesus is forbidding in this passage. And we want to be the types of Christians who disagree with each other well. Uh, I think we could look no farther than twitter (laughs) to see how we shouldn't be disagreeing with each other i I remember when twitter was simply a place where you let your friends know where you're going to go eat dinner (laughs) hoping maybe somebody would join you but now at least among the people that i follow on twitter i'm going to say it's at least 40 percent arguments and not just like nice arguments just throwing stones Self-righteous, unloving arguments. And it's not limited to the non-Christian world. I see Christians and pastors and professors who look like they care a lot more about being right than being loving. That's the kind of condemnation that Jesus is forbidding. And the kind of condemnation that comes from having a low view of God. So if you have a low view of God, low enough to play God himself, then you won't just be taking a large step towards self-righteousness. We're gonna be taking a large step maybe towards stepping under the condemnation and the wrath of God himself. That's what Jesus is saying. So the first component is that we have a low view of God. The second and third components I'm gonna put together because they they come together in verses three through five. The second and third components to self-righteousness is having a high view of yourself and a low view of others. Let's read verses 3, and five, three, 4, and 5. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. All right, this is one of those verses that is so familiar, it can really lose the magnitude that it's intended to have. Uh, I think in our culture it could, it could work a little bit like a vaccine, you know. In a vaccine, you get just enough of the virus to where you're not affected by it, and then it prevents you from ever being affected by it. <laughs> you know, and that's the way that we can look at familiar passages like this, but it can't get that familiar. We want it to continue to carry the magnitude that Jesus intended for it to have. So what is the speck and the log? The speck is like a splinter. You know, the the smallest piece of wood that you can imagine. And some people make the argument for a piece of sawdust. Um, I I would lean more towards splinter because I think it's the perfect contrast to what he calls the plank. This would be like the big beam that supports a house or a building. And so you have two versions of the same thing. One really big, one really small. And Jesus is saying, why are you so concerned with the splinter in that person's eye when you've got a beam in your eye? And we need to remember this, splinter in your eye, that would hurt, right? It's it's not something insignificant. So Jesus is not comparing some serious sin here with the plank with some really not that important sin, you know, splinter in the eye. What Jesus is doing, he's comparing a serious sin with a catastrophic sin. That's what Jesus is doing. They're saying that we're not going to be able to help others with the splinter in their eye, which is something that we as Christians are called to do unless we're first dealing with the plank in our own eyes. That's the way that we're to judge. Why is that? Why is Jesus so concerned that the self-righteous Pharisees take out their own log before they deal with the splinter in other people? Because self-righteousness is always going to judge others more harshly than ourselves. We're always going to have a higher view of ourselves. We're going to let ourselves off the hook. And we're going to be more harsh in the way that we condemn other people. That's not what Jesus is calling us to do. I had a pastor years ago who said he, he made it a practice to never engage in church discipline until he had a lump in his throat. Because then he knew that his heart was in the right place. I think that's a really good practice, a really good way to to understand, is our heart in the right place? Are we dealing with our own plank before we go after the splinters? The way Paul says it in Galatians 6, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So we see again the hope in the way that we judge people is that there would be restoration. So this, this word restore, it's the same word that fishermen would use in, in ancient times to fix their net, to restore their net. So the picture is we're restoring someone to usefulness. So the heart, it isn't to condemn them, it's to restore them, restore them to usefulness. And the Pharisees, in Jesus' day, I, I think they were concerned with anything but the restoration of other people. And they were anything but useful to the people they were leading and so the very nature of self-righteousness is to have a high view of ourselves a low view of other people we're going to justify our own sin we're going to condemn the sin in everyone around us and what do you become a hypocrite <laughs> You, you have a high view of ourselves, a low view of another person. You justify all your own sin. You condemn everybody else's sin. And then spiritually speaking, we're really no better than an out of shape dude sitting on a couch, <laughs> yelling through the TV at the quarterback that he needs to be trying harder. <laughs> That's what's going on here. And I think you can make a really strong argument that prideful self-righteousness is among the most destructive of sins in the human race and, and maybe the worst way that it enters into the christian church is through gossip because when you gossip about somebody you know you're not even giving them the opportunity to deal with the splinter you know you have this plank in your eye and you've decided you're going to go and talk to everybody else about the splinter in that other person's eye and in the church you know we can we can find ways to make it not sound as gossipy. you know. If it's preceded by, hey, just so you can pray for this person. You know, I'm, I'm going to tell you this thing. And, and for the more southern among you, you know, it's preceded and finished by what? Bless your heart. <laughs> you know, it, it, In Mississippi, when bless your heart came out, then you knew the best stuff was coming. <laughs> but gossip is destructive. At least the Pharisees had the guts to go to the person and deal with the splinter in their eye. If there is one preeminent characteristic that we in the Christian church should embody, it's having a higher view of other people than ourselves. Lifting other people up higher than we would seek to be lifted up. So the self-righteous have a low view of God, a high view of self, a low view of others. And then lastly, the self-righteous have a low view or a total disregard of the gospel. Verse six, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your per- pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now I've got to be, <laughs> there's a lot I need to say here. Um, I've got to be really clear. In, when, I, when I say that the self-righteous have a low view of the gospel, I am not saying that every unbeliever is insufferably self-righteous. Because I know some people who are not Christians that I could learn a whole lot from in the humility department. What I am saying is that everyone who noticeably struggles with self-righteousness, they have a low view of or a total disregard of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, this is a confusing verse. Because it can seem like Jesus is saying, don't judge anybody too harshly. Don't condemn them unless you come to a pig or a dog. Then you judge, then you condemn. And so this is, there's a ton of debate on this verse. And to be fair, if Jesus wanted to do that, Jesus could do that. <laughs> and if that's what Jesus wanted to say, Jesus could say it. I just don't think that it fits with the flow of what he's trying to communicate. All right, so let me let you into this hotly debated verse that we need to be okay disagreeing on because a lot of people that I greatly admire are, are on a different side than me in our interpretation of this verse. So... Most people would agree, not all, but most, that, that the pearl, whatever this pearl is, it's also holy, right? Don't give the pearl to the pig or a dog what is holy. That we're talking about the kingdom of God, that we're talking about the gospel. That's the holy, precious, treasured thing right here. And everybody would agree that we're probably talking about somebody's ability or inability to comprehend and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, but the center of the debate is whether or not these animals are domesticated. that <laughs> sounds, but like the, whether or not these, these pigs and dogs are domesticated, it affects the way that you interpret the verse. So one group of people would say we 're not dealing with domesticated animals, we 're dealing with wild animals, wild dogs that scavenge the landscape we 're dealing with dirty pigs, and on top of that, maybe I should say behind that, you have some derogatory terms because Dogs is what Jewish people would have called Gentiles in that day, and pigs is what Gentiles would have called Jews in that day. And we all know that, that pigs were unclean animals. So the way that they would interpret this verse is to say that there is a point at which someone's heart is so hard that we choose not to share the gospel with them anymore. Okay, That's, that's how one one side of our faith would interpret that. That it not only would be fruitless to share the gospel with them, it could, also be, could actually be dangerous for you to do so. Now, here are the reasons that I disagree with that position. First, I do think that we're talking about domesticated animals. So two weeks ago, Ligan Duncan came in here and he preached on Matthew 13, just a few chapters later, and in that passage we had a domesticated dog under the table. So that at least opens the door, okay, for this to be a domesticated animal. Another reason I think that we're not playing on dog and pig here is because the pig was the unholy thing, but holiness was contrasted with the dog, not the pig, okay? So I think we're dealing with domesticated animals. Second, again, I don't think this fits with the flow of Jesus' teaching. I don't think Jesus would say, don't judge, don't judge, don't judge, unless you find a pig or a dog. Because if you're if you're writing their ability to comprehend the gospel off completely, you are condemning them at some level. Thirdly, if the main point of the passage is to tell us that there's a point at which someone can't hear the gospel anymore, and I would agree, there there is biblical precedent for there being a point at which someone will no longer hear the gospel, the heart is too hard. But if that's the main point of the passage, that we're to stop at that point, how in the world do I know when that point is i 'm not god i don 't know people 's hearts, so I just don 't think that can be what 's going on here and then lastly, if dogs is really a reference to the unbelieving world, then it really seems to undermine matthew twenty eight the great commission, where the gospel goes to the gentiles so i again, you may disagree with me, and that that 's fine i hopefully i've i've represented your view adequately, but I think there's one scenario where that interpretation works. And that's if it only applies to Jesus Christ. <laughs> okay, so if, if Jesus is the one saying, I know who's too far, whose heart is too, too hard, and I will not share the gospel with that person, then that's Jesus' prerogative because he can see hearts, but we can't. And I don't think Jesus would say something that only applies to him. I think he's teaching us something. So I would side with a different Group of scholars and say these are domesticated animals. That the pearl is the gospel. That we are still talking about their ability to understand and comprehend the gospel. But I I see Jesus as explaining, not commanding. Okay, that's the big difference: explaining why it is that certain people don't respond to the gospel, why it is that they can't comprehend. Not saying stop sharing the gospel with those people. There's a big difference. Here's how Tim Keller explains it. He says there are different, uh, different parts of creation, all with different abilities to comprehend and feel. So you have a rock with zero ability to think or feel. All right, Then you have a tree, which obviously can't think, but there is some data that say that they can feel at some level. Then you go to a pig or a dog and there is a much higher capacity to think, to feel, to understand, but they're not sentient. And then you go all the way to a human being and you get the highest level of understanding and comprehension in all of the created order. So what Jesus is doing here in making the distinction between believers and pigs and dogs is saying that there's there's a there's a difference in their ability to understand the message of the gospel. That's what he's saying because you put something precious before a pig like a pearl and a pig's not gonna appreciate it because a pig has one overarching desire to fill his belly. So he looks at a pearl and he's not gonna know what to do with it or he may try to eat the pearl and become upset by it. You put something that's holy in front of a dog and he's not gonna know what to do with it. He can't see the beauty And the treasure, all he cares about is filling his stomach. So in the same way, Jesus is saying that humanity divides up into two groups of people. People who can see the treasure of Jesus Christ and his kingdom for who he is and what it is. And people who look at it and simply think, but what can you do for me now? How can you fill my belly? And that comes From a self-righteousness that has a very low view of the gospel. Because if you have a low view of God. You have a high view of ourselves. You're going to very logically have a low view of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're just going to want to get what you can get today. So the way this applies is that it should not surprise us. When people don't respond to the gospel. There are people who look at the gospel like. Like a pig would look at a pearl or a dog would look at something holy. And Jesus is not, I don't think, wanting to really be mean here. But he's trying to communicate something very clearly. Do not be surprised when certain people hear the gospel and they don't see it as precious as you do. Do not be surprised if certain people hear the gospel and become angry. It's not, I wouldn't say fundamentally that they're horrible people. They can't see it. And I do think that would develop a measure of compassion on our, on our part, a measure of sympathy on our part. They can't see the thing that we believe is so precious because they look at Christianity and they think maybe that this is a religion fundamentally to make us nicer or better and they don't understand that this is a religion That at its core makes us new. And that's why self righteousness is so dangerous. So, those are the components of self righteousness. Now, very briefly, what is the cure? All right, we see the cure is found in the context of what Jesus is saying here. Because Jesus is talking about a very specific kind of self righteousness. He's talking about a religious self-righteousness. He's talking to these Pharisees who want a religion to make them feel better about themselves. They want a religion to make them feel better about their self-righteousness. They want a religion that's going to make them prettier pigs. But that isn't what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to make us new. And the Pharisees, like so many in our day, they're looking at Jesus, they're looking at Christianity, and simply thinking, what can you do for me? How can you fill my belly? Not realizing that Jesus is bringing so much more than simply filling our belly. And I was thinking about it this week, and this is the best way I know to illustrate the what it is that I think Jesus is trying to communicate. And in this illustration, you're gonna learn a very interesting fact about my wife, that probably she did not share at the Women of Grace this week. She is a huge John Wayne fan. Huge John Wayne fan. She, uh, before we were married, had a life-size cutout of John Wayne in her apartment. She named a fish John Wayne. She has seen every single John Wayne movie there is, and this is the really impressive thing to me. She knows the difference between them. Like, to me, they just all ran together, but she could tell you which John Wayne movie is which. And so, Rewind back to when I was in college. I At FSU, I had to take a film class because we were very cultured in Tallahassee. And I would have to go and watch these John Wayne films. And I would go to this building where they would show the film and I'd watch these John Wayne films because of what I would get out of the John Wayne film. I would get credit for the course and I wanted a good grade, so I looked at John Wayne, watched John Wayne so that I could get what I wanted. Fast forward to today and... One cultured wife added to the Davis family. And I'm learning to look at John Wayne and watch these movies and not think of what can I benefit from it, but I'm actually appreciating who John Wayne is and what he's doing. And in the same way, we need to be able to look at Jesus and not just look at what you do for me, what I get from you, but who he is and treasure him and appreciate him. That's a very different approach than the self-righteous Pharisees in this text. So the cure to self-righteousness is to admit that we're self-righteous and to open our eyes to who Jesus is. That's the cure. Not to look at Jesus just for what he can give you, but to look at Jesus for who he really is. And another way to ask this question is who is the treasure in your life? Is the treasure you or is it Jesus? Because there's some people who whose treasure is fundamentally themselves. And they, they might look at Jesus and, and say, I, I can take this and this and that will benefit me and I'm gonna reject these other things. And there are gonna be those people who look at Jesus and they want nothing to do with him because he does not offer them anything that benefits their greatest treasure. And then there are those of us who look at Jesus and bow because we see the treasure that is Jesus Christ. And it is that moment that we are no longer Pigs. That we see Jesus for who He is, and we're fundamentally cured of our self-righteousness. I know this is a heavy text, but it has m- as much to say to us as it does the unbelieving world, because we are just as prone as Christians to be self-righteous as anybody else. And you know, it's been fun being back in Orlando. You know, I've, I grew up in Orlando. Came back in August, and it's been fun reconnecting with people. I've been meeting people in my neighborhood, in my kid's school. Some pastors have very graciously reached out to me, taking me to coffee, to lunch. And a question I get often you know, is, what, what's your theological background? And when somebody asks that, my, increasingly my most common answer is, well, I'm Reformed, but I'm not angry about it. <laughs> Because there is this tendency in our stream of evangelicalism to be self-righteous about the gospel. And we don't understand that when we do that, we're fundamentally undermining our ability to present the gospel because we're so proud of what we know and how we've come to know it. But our hope as Christians is to be so selfless in the way that we live our lives, modeled by the most selfless one that has ever lived, Jesus Christ, who gave up all his righteousness on the cross to hand it to us. We're bathed in his righteousness. We have no righteousness in our own. We are given Jesus's righteousness, so we should be the most humble, the most selfless. And when that happens, that's when we are fruitful. That's when we display a gospel of power, one that people will want <laughs> One that people will be drawn to and one that will win people into the kingdom. So this passage has as much to say to every single one of us as it does to anybody outside this room. So my hope is that today all of us, because we are all, as my daughter said, sinful people who need God. My hope is that God in his grace, by the power of his spirit, would show all of us ways that we are self-righteous all of us ways, that we have a low view of God, a low view of others, a high view of ourselves, and a low view of the gospel. And if God does that in our midst, we are going to see things happen. Let's pray. God, I am so thankful that you don't mince words, but I pray that we would always be deeply understanding Uh, of the way that you communicate to us that we would that we would have a deep sense of our own sin and your holiness and the lengths that you have gone to restore us and that we would be humble humble people who have nothing in and of ourselves to boast in but boast greatly in your grace and Jesus Christ your son that is our prayer We ask this this morning and we ask this in his name. Amen.